All right, well, welcome everyone. Um, I'm uh, Greg with AWS, and then joining me is Naveen and Varun from Cisco, and so they'll kind of uh, do their introductions here in a second. Uh, thanks for joining us at, you know, it's 5.30. Uh, we had asked for drinks uh, in the back, but um, I guess they didn't, didn't show up, but uh, hopefully, you know, I, by spending an hour with us or so, we'll um, you have a lot to learn about Cisco's journey to the data lake and some of the, the great efforts that they've made. Um, so, so just to kind of, you know, set things up, I think, you know, I just have like, uh, so I'm part of AWS big data team, so I cover like analytics from visualization all the way through data warehousing and Hadoop and kind of the full analytics stack. And I just wanted to kind of spend maybe like two or three slides up front just so we think about, you know, how do I deploy a, a data lake on AWS, right? Or how do I build, like, sometimes you might call it next generation analytic framework on AWS, right? And I think um, a lot of times this kind of architectural framework kind of provides the template and then customers like Cisco take that and apply that to their business needs. And so hopefully in this session, you can hear from me a little bit in terms of like what we think that pattern uh, looks like. And then you know, more importantly, the vast majority of the presentation will be from um, uh, Naveen and, and Varun about how they actually built it uh, in, in the services themselves. And hopefully we'll have some time for questions um, at the end as well. So we think about like, like you know, I always kind of go back and forth this, this term, you know, data lake, uh, do you think about, is it just marketing hype, right? Is it something real? And I kind of, you know, think about, was it modern data architecture or data lake or, you know, um, analytics in the cloud, right? There's lots of, like, terms we can apply to it, but essentially, you know, if you think about, like, on-premise environments and historical kind of, you know, analytic frameworks, and, you know, personally, I spent, like, over 10 years at Oracle, and, you know, think about this world where we had to buy the hardware, it had to be installed, configured, right? And, you know, it could cost, you know, millions of dollars. It could take months, if not years. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, we invested so much money in this one thing, this appliance, this database, that all questions, all kind of queries had to come there, right? Because we have this sunk cost and investments there, right? Which was fine, like, like for a period of time, but then, you know, new data types, new sources, new users, and at some point, you know, that this framework, you know, starts to break down, right? And so think about building an analytics framework on AWS. Well, we want to have immediate availability, right? So can I provision a, a 10 node Hadoop cluster in 10 minutes or less, right? Can I scale that 10 node Hadoop, Hadoop cluster from 10 nodes to 1,000 nodes in like less than 30 minutes and then bring it back to 10 nodes, right? And so this really kind of, you know, this idea of immediate availability means that you know, yes, we still have, you know, audit governance and control, and we want to think carefully about frameworks, but we also just want to go try something, right? And this idea that, that I don't have one system for all use cases really leads to the second point of this broad and deep platform for analytics, right? And sometimes, you know, we get feedback saying, well, it's kind of confusing looking at AWS services because there are a lot of logos, a lot of icons, and, and hopefully by looking at you know, use cases from customers like Cisco, you can kind of see how we can assemble these, but we also think like fundamentally a strength is this broad and deep platform, meaning that, you know, we don't want to say like, here's the only way to do things for analytics on AWS, that we want to have not just AWS systems, but also partner ecosystem that really provides a choice that enables flexibility to avoid that scenario where, you know, your data is locked in a particular thing and you're stuck, right? Because we don't know, like, given competition, given the rapid pace of innovation, like, what's the next thing? And so we want to be able to have an adaptable framework such that we can really deliver analytics and, and you know, take a view to the future and not, not be, you know, locked into frameworks or not just move existing architectural patterns from on-premise to the cloud without, you know, thinking about how availability and this innovation really, really uh, drives better decision-making, right? And then knowing that, that this trusted and secured platform, so whether it's you know, um, HIPAA data for health, US healthcare companies, if it's PCI data, um, you know, if I have like, you know, my most sensitive data, right, you, know, you should be super confident running that on AWS. And, and I think you know, we all, if you kind of followed AWS over the years, I believe it was two years back, uh, uh, the CIO of Capital One you know, made a comment that you know, AWS is more secure than his data centers, right? And so this idea that trust and confidence for all of your data on, on AWS. And then knowing that it's not just about, 
you know, building your own solutions and, and knowing how to deploy these, but we have a large and rich partner ecosystem that can help. And so, you know, I'll kind of cover many of the AWS services, but knowing that if I have tools like Informatica or if I have, you know, uh, you know, Tableau for business reporting, or if I have, you know, system integrators, consulting partners, that there's this rich ecosystem of both independent software vendors and consulting partners that can kind of help along this journey as well. Um, and so what this really drives, I think, you know, to kind of just build out a couple of bullet points here is if I think about that immediate availability and that, you know, broad and deep platform is, you know, what this allows is now to say, let's focus on the business outcome first, right? And by this, I mean, you know, like in, you know, my 15, you know, plus years, I always kind of say, well, let's go focus on the business case. Well, okay, that's, that's given, but, you know, if I have invested millions of dollars in a single appliance, whether it's Hadoop cluster on-premise or data warehouse on-premise, then I'm kind of restricted by what I can do, right? But if I think about, really think about the business outcome first, what we mean is adapt this flexible set of web services to apply the right architectural pattern, right? And then importantly, as you know, we want to always think about like success and we want to prove something out and put it to production, I would say equally as important is the ideas of experimentation where we want to make the cost of failure super low, right? And so if we really are you know, driving uh, the edge of analytics and kind of value, we should expect that if I can, you know, for instance, turn on a Spark cluster in five minutes or less, run an experimentation, and if, you know, if it didn't work, turn it off, right? Um, the same thing for a data warehouse. I can say, okay, if I have analytical queries, I can test it, and then if it works, put it to production, but if it doesn't, you know, turn it off, right? And only pay for what you use. And kind of not being locked into long-term software contracts really helps drives this culture of innovation. And then, of course, as new components come out, can I quickly adapt them, right? And this really comes down to how I can be agile and timely by, by thinking about, you know, not just you know, delivering capabilities that we did in the past, but really what's the next generation kind of analytics in terms of deriving value from the data that we can, we can have, right? Those are all just kind of, you know, some of the, the basic tenets and hopefully not too much repetitive for those of you that are already familiar with the topic. But, you know, we're kind of, this is, I promise this is kind of my last slide before we delve into Cisco's use case. It really comes to, with all those, you know, pieces come into play is from an architecture perspective, you know, our pattern says, you know, put your data for the most part on S3, right? And yes, data can be in other sources, but fundamentally, if the data is consolidated on S3, then I can enable what I would call the three key features of the data lake, and the first being separating compute and storage, right? And so uh, bringing the right amount of compute to the processing power that's needed, then not using the compute when it's not needed, right? And, and not, not using HDFS, right? So, you know, not paying the triple replication tax of HDFS, but having, you know, these open file formats like Parquet and ORC and JSON and Avro, but having them just on S3 itself, right? Um, and then by having them on S3, like, I would then enables the idea of collaboration. So having this flexible set of analytic tools from AWS and other partners that can then, you know, access that data on S3. And so how does a tool like Redshift, and which is our data warehousing service and Redshift Spectrum, how does it know about a file on S3? Well, it has to have either a Hive Metastore configured, or from AWS, we have a service called the Glue Data Catalog, right? Which provides this Hive Metastore API, which simply says, I've got files on S3, but I've got you know, SQL queries that I need to access. And so the, the Glue Data Catalog provides that metadata repository. So it doesn't move the data but simply provides the table structures that map ultimately to files on S3, right? And then because we're using S3, which is simply a object store, right? So S3 is not a database, but the file format matters. And so a lot of times we might want to convert CSV files, JSON files to things like Parquet or ORC or Avro. And so we also have this serverless query or data transformation service called the Glue Execution Engine that provides a serverless Spark container such that your application developers or people that are doing data transformation can worry about their code, whether it's Python code, to be able to express the transformations. But then we provide a serverless Spark container to execute that called the glue, uh, the AWS glue, right, to actually do the, the execution of the transformations. So once I have my file formats, you know, in the right shape and they're presented in the glue data catalog, I can now say, well, Am I doing what I might think about uh, data discovery, where attributes like schema on read and, and sort of like having analysts that want to know SQL but 
have uncertain patterns that just need a simple way to access that data, they have a, we have a service called Amazon Athena. So Athena provides a completely serverless um, access through SQL to data on S3. There's no cluster to configure. There's, there's simply a very simple pay-by-query model where analysts you know, can either use ODBC, JDBC, or the API to just issue SQL directly against these open file formats on S3, right? And then I contrast that to what I might call a data warehousing workload where you know, in data warehousing, the schemas are well known, right? The access patterns are fairly well known. And that's really where you know, a cost-based optimizer and having you know, local disk for complex SQL joins makes a lot of sense. And that's really the, the sweet spot for Redshift, right? So Redshift is our strategic product from AWS for data warehousing. Um, and now with Redshift Spectrum, we can extend our data warehouse to all of our data on S3 as well, right? And so with Spectrum, I'm not using the local Redshift cluster to query the data. I'm using a serverless compute layer called Spectrum to, to, to query that data. But from a table perspective, from the BI user perspective, they're still connecting to the same Redshift endpoint, but now it includes all of my structured data in local Redshift plus my unstructured data on S3. And then for the end user that really prefers programmatic access to data, uh, you know, using Apache Hadoop framework, whether it's Spark or Hive or even, you know, Presto as part of a Hadoop on, on EC2, we have Amazon EMR, right, which is our managed Hadoop service that, again, inherits the separation of compute and storage, allows multiple Hadoop clusters to access the same data, and inhibits the idea of pay-by-second kind of billing for really fast adoption for, for Hadoop use cases. And so, oftentimes, you know, we think about, like, our old data warehouse on-premise, and I might draw a circle around S3, the data catalog, and then Athena, EMR, and Redshift, and that might be your new pattern in the cloud, right? And, and why do we want to do that? It's like, well, first, you know, yes, there's, there's more than one box on the slide, but fundamentally, we want to align the use case and the pricing model with actual consumption, right? And not forcing things through that single, single stack, right? And then the, finally, you know, in terms of AWS services, we have the vid data visualization and sort of that, that last mile in terms of how the business user interacts with the data, and that's the role that Amazon QuickSight plays. And yes, in this whole pattern, you can overlay, like if I prefer to use Tableau or prefer to use Informatica for transformations, those are all like valid components, and so there's the ability through partners to mix and match, but the design framework of separating compute and storage, of having open file formats on S3, and by open formats, I mean the Apache formats like Parquet and ORC and Avro and others, um, and then letting teams collaborate on the same data using the same data definition in the Glue catalog, then really kind of unlocks the power of data so that we're not restricted to the capabilities of any one, one system. So that's kind of the, 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 the call it the AWS perspective on the data lake, and so if there's questions, happy to take them, take them you know, after as well, but really, you know, we want to think about this pattern and how you know, Cisco was able to apply this you know, for their use case. And so I believe Devine's going to start off on this uh, discussion on their journey to the data lake on AWS. Thanks, Greg. So let me start by introducing myself. And uh, there are a few folks here that you might want to touch base with after the session, the guys that actually did a lot of the work for us to embark on the journey and get to a point where we are actually getting material value and benefit out of it. Um, all of the challenges that Greg talked about, the latency, the, the challenges with buying on-prem devices, the speed of business, wanting us to kind of deliver insights in weeks and days, not in months, we had none of those problems. I've been in the role for about two and a half years. When I took this over, we had none of these challenges whatsoever. We had the best in breed infrastructure. We had a lot of the resources that we needed to be able to get us to the end point on the North Star but we did not have a data lake. We wanted to build a data lake. No, not really. We had all of the challenges that he talked about and then some. A lot of the stuff that he talked about in terms of our legacy infrastructure, we had challenges with, um, it was an on-prem device, an appliance that we used for our insights, uh, an IBM device. It was great for the use case that we applied it for, but as our needs started to morph and change, it wasn't really sufficient for us to kind of get to the next level of analytics and data that the business wanted us to get to. Before I get to the journey, I'll give you a little bit of context about Cisco itself, what we do, and what was the motivation for us embarking on this data journey. So Cisco Foods is a global leader in distribution. We have about 200 distribution centers all across the world, about 13 countries. We serve about 500 
thousand customers, half a million customers. If you guys have eaten at a restaurant, if you guys ate on the plane ride over to Vegas to, to reinvent, your kids eating in school cafeterias, healthcare institutions, there's a very high likelihood that the ingredients that have gone into the food that you're eating went through the Cisco supply chain. We are the largest distributor in the US and are starting to grow globally as well with acquisitions. Um, other key facts about Cisco, we've got a broadline business that essentially uh, is about 80% of our revenues. We're about 55 billion in revenue. We're headquartered in Houston. We also have uh, lines of business that cater to customer segments that are uh, specialized. We also have product lines that are catered to customer segments that are, are specialized. There's uh, one of our lines of business serves the fast food restaurant chains. We serve about 17,000 of those. They map to about 32 concepts. Concepts are like a Subway or a Wendy's. So we've got different lines of business. We actually have lines of business for different uh, fresh produce products as well as meat products. Over the years, Cisco has grown through acquisitions. And that's been one of the, the good news stories in terms of top line revenue growth but it's also been a technology challenge in terms of integrating that infrastructure and that data into getting and, and building contiguous insights that we can use at the scale and enterprise that Cisco is. So that's been one of the challenges that we've struggled with over the years. As I look at, um, you know, Revine about two years, two and a half years ago when I took the role on, we had all of these siloed uh, data warehouses, databases that people used to create their own analytics. And that was the opportunity, right? That was one of the biggest opportunities we had to kind of put all of that and bring that to the center and look at it from an enterprise perspective. So three years ago, this is the primary driver for the motivation to look and overhaul our data infrastructure. Three years ago, we, uh, about three years ago, we committed to the street on a three-year plan. And a component of the three-year plan was an uptick on our operating income by $500 million and about a 15% return on investment. That was ambitious goals on a three-year plan. We committed this to the street based on some of the high-level inputs that you know, the leadership had kind of gathered. This was a drive that stemmed from some of the changes that happened in our board, and we wanted to hit these targets. As you all know, the devil's in the detail. How do you kind of now meet these numbers? Because these numbers then cascade down to the different business functions, and all of the leaders then started looking at, hey, I need to be able to hit these, these numbers. They're very ambitious numbers on a three-year target. What can I actually activate? So as you can see on the slide, one of the key enablers for us to be able to meet our plan was technology. And as we kind of double-clicked into that, one of the key things that we realized was that data and insights, which we kind of used in more of a hindsight reporting fashion rather than analytics to lead us forward, was going to be a key. A lot of the business that were, they were uh, silos in the business that started thinking about data differently and started looking at data as being a catalyst for us to be able to hit our plan. So that was one of the key drivers that our executive bought into the data journey for was, hey, this, this technology change and transformation was going to help us achieve our goals. It's going to be foundational, fundamental for us to be able to hit our three-year plan. And that was extremely important. It wasn't the need for us to build a data lake and all the cool stuff that Greg talked about. It wasn't that. We had to have the business bought into this because the sustainment and the value and the adoption of what we were building was that, the three-year plan. So before we actually started looking at building and figuring out what our data journey looked like, we did an as-is assessment, right? What were we, what did we have already? What were the challenges? What were we looking at doing and accomplishing in the next few years to hit those targets? As we looked at this, one of, the key, we, one of the key conversations we had was with all of the business functional leaders. We met with them, interviewed them, had conversations around where they thought there was opportunity and where they thought there were challenges. And we've distilled this, I've kind of distilled this down to about four points on the left, and I won't drain the slide. Um, the, the key message in all of these four points is we had a lack of analytical capabilities. We were a very hindsight-focused organization. We burst out tons and tons and tons of reports, row and column-based Excel reports and PDFs that went into people's mailboxes, hundreds of thousands of them every day, every week, every month, not really knowing what people did with it. Right? So there was no analytical capability. It was all of, hey, I'm giving you the data. Go figure out what to do with it. There wasn't a, uh, a 
a desire to use the data or there wasn't an adoption of the data in terms of being able to look forward and activate that from a value perspective. That was one. There was also a, um, a hard wall between various business functions, merchandising, sales, uh, revenue management themes. We had artificial walls set up in terms of being able to share data and metrics across these. And that was, that was in my mind, an artificial wall because people actually extracted data from our data warehouse and did their analysis offline. A lot of that was because there were technology challenges and the team here can talk about it. If you guys connect with them offline, a lot of them essentially did huge select star from X, downloaded the data and did offline analytics, right? So our, our goal was to start to look at bringing that to the center, having one reporting and metrics capability so that we, we have a consistent look and feel and a consistent number for a particular metric across the organization. Some of the challenges that we ran into that was not just from a um, siloed data perspective, but also from a support and cost perspective. We had different systems, different data, different teams reporting different numbers. I had to support all of those systems and then some to be able to kind of get the output for all of the business functions. And the challenge even more complicating was the fact that one business function said, hey, this is my value for the metric. The second one said, hey, this is it. And the third said, this is it. And we had to then reconcile those numbers. The guys here are smiling. There was a lot of that happening. Because that's part of the struggle. We've got we've to have governance around that. And an enabler to that is technology, right? It's one of the enablers. It's not the only thing. There's a lot of other transformational things that we're doing to kind of get that to the center. But having the data in one place was an enabler to allow us to do that. <clears throat> the second or the third thing there was our creeping cost of ownership. So we had one appliance, and then we had a whole lot of satellite data extracts, so databases, access, SQL servers, what have you, Oracle databases that Greg sold us at some point in time. There was a whole lot of stuff in our ecosystem that, that we had to start supporting, continue to support, and then there was a cost associated with it. right? And we had to try to get all of that to the center, rationalize our overall footprint. The other challenge was the appliance that we had was out of date. We had a huge price tag from a CapEx perspective to go buy a new appliance. The lead time to set that up was anywhere, you guys probably know this, was anywhere between six, to, six months to a year, and the business had a plan that we had to hit in a year's time. So those were the catalysts for us to start looking at other alternatives. And then from a scale and, scalability, uh, from a scale and stability perspective, our appliance, like I said, was out of support. We had a lot of downtimes. There was not a whole lot of DR, uh, HA kind of capabilities that we had on the boxes. That caused a lot of consternation. And the other piece of this was there were some business units that were starting to look at advanced analytics. And being able to do advanced analytics, for those of you guys that have actually tried to run advanced analytics or Python code on a traditional data warehousing appliance, doesn't really scale too well because you're already bombarding those workloads with a lot of stuff that's transactional in nature. And then you hit it with a big query. We've had those issues where we've really caused an outage for the business where we aren't able to support our operational report. So that was another part of the problem. These four bullets were the catalysts for us to kind of start looking at what's our next step in our journey. What do we need to now do to be able to solve for this and build this so that we can achieve the three-year plan. An additional exercise that we did, and I'll talk to you a little bit about this, uh, this graph and the chart that's up there. As you look at it, look at it from left to right. The x-axis essentially is stuff that's hindsight. The middle is kind of the inside where you derive insight from what your data is telling you. And then the, the extreme right on the axis is foresight. Where do you think we fit in two and a half years ago? We were on the extreme left quadrant and maybe that box of formatted reporting was the largest. One of the guys over here who's going to remain unnamed built one of those applications. But again, it was fit for time. That was the right application at the right time, right? We had that, but the, the challenge was that we were grounded in that. The business was used to it. They loved it. How do we actually start moving them up the curve to be able to hit those numbers? Because looking at hindsight data can only get you so far. We need to now derive insights, actions, and then try to get to a point where we are now, based on the, design, uh, on the data patterns, predicting what the data is telling us, right? So we had to move up the curve. And as you look at it, parameterized reporting stuff that you know, we actually pass the parameters, you get a row and column report. Again, it's still a row and column report. Guided exploration was more around guided ad hoc analysis where data analysts went in, pulled out queries, tried to decipher insights, and shared that with the business. And then we kind of traversed up the curve in certain business areas where we thought there was value. Uh, we looked at visual analytics tools like Tableau. We're also looking at potentially using QuickSites in the future. But Tableau was our mainstay 
for doing some level of visual analytics that enabled key business areas and outcomes within our category management function, as well as our operational data insights functions. So those got us a little bit up on the curve. The size of the box kind of tells you where we are now, what we are starting to do. But two years ago, two and a half years ago, we were far left and bottom on that curve. Um, what this also tells you is that there is a huge span, a huge gamut of uh, different use cases that a data ecosystem needs to be able to enable. Right, from operational reporting, which is extremely structured, right? You gotta have your operational reports, you gotta have what's my sales numbers, what's my margin, what's my efficiency in the warehouses, are extremely rigid structured data elements, to what you're now trying to predict on churn models, on price elasticity, things like that, which kind of traverse up the curve and require different compute and storage, right? You've gotta figure out how do you tie all of those together. Not one system would solve for this. Right? So that's where we started looking at what's, our, what's the right path forward for us. If IBM's tools don't necessarily do it, does Hadoop look at it? Right? Can we go all Hadoop and figure this out? And essentially Hadoop's the answer for everything. We looked at vendors that were only pure play Hadoop to all the way to big data appliances. Right? There were, we looked at some cloud providers. There were SaaS-based models as well. Where we ended up, though, was there was not one single tool that solved for the entire spectrum. We had to look at tools that were a hybrid, that were a conglomeration, that were a set of tools that we used within Cisco to be able to achieve all of the business use cases. That's where AWS kind of had the advantage. <clears throat> so this slide kind of talks about how did we approach our journey, right? We approached the journey on a three-pillar basis. It was across people, process, and technology that we made our transitions. Uh, our transformation around people and process, I'll talk about a little bit, but the rest of the slides and the content in the deck is gonna be primarily focused around the technology pieces. And Varun's actually gonna talk about the details of how we achieved what we achieved. And a lot of the team here um, helped us get there. So from a people perspective, um, when I took the team over, we were, Cisco overall was a fairly heavily outsourced organization. A lot of our technology resources and the skills lay within our managed services partner. We did not really have a whole lot of technical resources that were intimate with our, our data and or technology stack that enabled it. So that was a key component of us being able to move forward on this journey. We had to have that quote unquote secret sauce enabled inside of Cisco. We had a key few set of resources that we knew that could seed the next set that we needed to be able to grow. So we all got all of those resources that we knew were technologists to the center. We, made a, we, we actually made decisions around pulling some of the resources that were data smart and working on reporting things into one central organization um, about two years ago. And we started seeding them with new net new resources that had capabilities on the AWS stack or on, on the cloud stack, if you will. That was one key change that we started making. The second was around the process itself. How many of you work in Agile versus the standard waterfall model? Agile? All right, so we started off being all waterfall. Right? The challenge with being waterfall was the fact that data never stays static. The business needs never stay static. We were in a model where Rex went out to the business and said, hey, give me your business requirements. We wrote, took a piece of paper, wrote down all our requirements. The business signed off on it. Rex went and built it. Four months later, he deployed it. Everything was hunky-dory. Does it work that way? It never works that way. Rex probably made a whole lot of mistakes too. Um, but the point is, the business actually changes, right? And it's changing really, really quickly. We've got to keep up. We've got to be able to kind of give them the flexibility to change that need and to be able to accommodate that change fairly quickly. And that's where Agile kind of helped. We partnered with the business to be able to kind of have a seat at the table, work with us on an iterative basis to be able to release a minimum viable product first up. We do about two, three week sprints, um, and we deliver capability over time. It's not been an easy journey. The transformation's been, and it's not complete, the, the journey's been bumpy. The challenge, though, that we had at the, the offset was that we, weren't, we, we were kind of the first people in the overall organization that went through the change. The good news in all of this was there were a few success stories that started to stem out of the meetings that we had with the business, and those success stories, success breeds success, 
a lot of those stories then started cross-pollinating across the various business areas, and that's how people kind of adopted Agile, and we're, all of the BI teams and all of the data and analytics teams today are all Agile. They work in the Agile format. Um, even the platform teams that we have that support our infrastructure and our, our data platform are also working in an Agile fashion. On the technology side, <clears throat> um, like I said, we, we actually evaluated a whole host of different products, right? We looked at AWS, but even within AWS, we were kind of initially focused just on the capability that Redshift offered. That's their data warehouse capability, and we looked at it as, as in a one-to-one -one swap between what we had on-prem with their IBM product and then what Redshift offered. But what we quickly realized in that evaluation process was that it wasn't just a, a one-trick pony, right? You had a whole lot of other capabilities within the landscape that you could actually leverage to activate that spectrum of use cases that you saw. And that's where I think AWS had the advantage. We were able to use the different components, tools, technologies within the stack to activate the end-to-end -end spectrum that we needed. The other thing that I really liked about AWS um, was the fact that their pace of innovation was extremely quick. Even during the evaluation process, I know Varun and team had identified a couple of gaps in the technologies that existed. And a month into the actual assessment, they were like, hey, we've got that capability already. So the pace of innovation was really something that, that kind of gave them a little bit of the edge. And the final component of this, food distribution is a very wafer-thin margins business. We don't really have heavy margins in this. We are extremely cost-sensitive. AWS provides us the capability to start small. The whole cloud ecosystem provided us the, the ability to start small, grow, experiment, and try, just like Greg said. Um, and, and that's, was, that, that's what, was, what was very attractive. It wasn't like I had to make a huge CapEx investment up front and buy it all and then experiment and then figure out, hey, this is not what we wanted to do. So that was another attractive component of going down the path with AWS. So having said that, we picked AWS as our technology stack. And drum roll, this is what we built. SEED. SEED's an acronym for Cisco's Ecosystem for Enterprise Data. Um, it's a scalable, cloud-based data platform made up of multiple components within it. We look at all the details in a second here. But the vision was to be able to kind of provide the business an, an on-demand-based data platform that gave them the power to stand up analytical sandboxes, to be able to do data discovery, to figure out very quickly where the hypotheses that they had around a particular pricing strategy, around a particular customer segment, how would you activate it? Does that really work well or not? They weren't able to do that with, with our on-prem appliance. It was like, hey, give me a month, I'll get you some data, and I'll get you some infrastructure. With Seed, we were able to do that. The other component of this, and I want to hit upon this really quickly, is we branded this overall data lake or data ecosystem, if you will. And why we did that was because our business was very, very keenly tied to our technology. So the IBM appliance that we had, it was always, hey, that appliance sucks because it's slow. It's, it wasn't the appliance itself, it was the amount of volume and quantity of data that we had. So we wanted to isolate the technology from the business. And moreover, the change management aspects of this, right? So if you think about it, our platform is made up of multiple components like you'll see. It's got S3, it's got Redshift, it's got Glue, it's got a bunch of CloudWatch things that it has. Um, and it keeps on morphing and changing. If you asked me six months ago, we, we, had, we hadn't started on using Redshift Spectrum, for example. We just upgraded to DC2 clusters. To isolate the business from all of the technology components under that and keep change management to a minimum while we swap things out behind the scenes from a technology perspective, we, we kind of called this and branded this seed. That's what the business has latched onto. That's what they know our data ecosystem to be. They don't really know it's AWS or it's, it's AWS Redshift or Spectrum or Glue or whatever else, right? So that was one of the key uh, adoption strategies that we, we kind of had in mind as we did this as well. <clears throat> so tying this all back to our three-year plan, now we are able to do a lot of this stuff. And these are the key business enablers, if you will, that Seed, our platform, has allowed us to give to the business, right? If you look at our marketing and sales areas, we are now able to do churn analysis. I know when a customer is about to kind of drop off, and I can tell my field, hey, go handhold him, give him this discount, make sure you actually give him some TLC so that he stays with us. If he's a category loss, we can actually do that. We know what the share of wallet of the customer is, so we can guide our sales force to go out there and pick and choose the right products to sell to them. 
as I move to the right, a lot of the stuff around category management that we do, we're starting up a new category management initiative uh, in the next few months, where we are actually going to do category management across all of our all of our assortment, right? We are looking at rationalizing our SKUs across all of our operating companies and being able to serve our customers at a lower cost. We are able to do that because of seed. Revenue management, again, like I said, margins is a key component of this, price elasticity, types of pricing that we have for customer segments. All of those components are things that, that seed has allowed us to do. So this essentially activated the three-year plan, and that was part of the, the motivation for us to, to embark on this journey. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because Varun's going to talk about it, and, and we are kind of running short on time. This is a macro-level view of where we've ended up right now. This is an evolution, though. It continues to evolve. These are various components within the AWS ecosystem that we are using today. S3 is primarily where we store all our data, and we then route it to the right components. Right? We use EMR to stand up data science use cases. Uh, we use Redshift for structured reporting. We use Lambda for activating and embedding those analytics into real-time applications. There's a lot of evolution that's happened over the last year and a half that we've been on the journey. Uh, we've got CloudWatch, and you see the bottom layer where we've got CloudWatch and the auditing uh, uh, components as well. I'll spend a minute on the slide, and then I'll hand it over to Varun to kind of talk through the details of how we, we actually implemented Seed. So ecosystem versus EDW. I kind of hit upon this in a previous few slides, excuse me, previous few slides as well. The, the idea behind this approach was a fit-for-purpose architecture. We had to kind of build this model to sustain all of the use cases and the future growth. We, we are experimenting with AI and ML now. A lot of the stuff that Seeds provided us the foundation for becomes the building block for us to kind of morph and change and mature on that journey. So that ecosystem concept versus kind of treating this as an enterprise data warehouse is where I think all of us will benefit from thinking about where we want to take and evolve to in terms of how we consume and use data. So that's my piece. I'll hand it over to Varun. He's going to talk us through uh, a lot of the implementation details and some of the lessons learned. Thank you, Naveen. Uh, you guys hear me okay? All right. Okay, so uh, my name is Varun, and I'm the person between you and happy hour right now. <laughs> Hurry up. So I'll, I'll try to be brief. I'll not try to touch on all the slides. Um, I'll try to call out the key uh, uh, open items, and then uh, we can review after this conversation if, if we need to talk in detail. So uh, the first thing that we want to talk about on the journey of the seed is, 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 is the things that both Naveen and Greg hinted on. So with AWS, we can always get started, get going, and then get organized. And that's what we pretty much did. Uh, first of all, what we started off doing is we had two Nitiza appliances. And we long had the ambition to consolidate those two Nitiza appliances into a single Nitiza environment. Uh, we, we realized that we could achieve the same by just moving to cloud from a cost savings perspective. And that's the whole genesis of Seed, where we wanted to deploy uh, a data mart on cloud and see how it goes. And then that's where we started. When we went there, we realized that there is a whole host of AWS services that can help us achieve our tech strategy that Naveen laid out in terms of uh, having economy of our architecture, which means same or better outcomes at a much lower cost, uh, have the opportunity of not being obsolete with Nitiza like, like the way we had uh, with the component-based architecture, and have an environment that goes at two speeds. One, which is a curated data model that we use for uh, penny accuracy reporting, and at the same time, allow for an environment for experimentation. So when we started that process, we realized there's a whole host of AWS services that we really don't know much about. So we took a step back. We started categorizing those services in terms of what we are trying to get smarter on and what those design patterns are. What are we trying to solve for from a data ingestion perspective? What are we trying to solve from a data consumption perspective? And what new capabilities we need to bring to the system? And all of this fed into a phase what we call proof of design and, and, and POD, if you will, and that kind of advised the future roadmap for us. Um, as we move forward, there are a few things that we focus from an ingestion perspective. Uh, we had a very uh, great approach through Informatica. We used to collect all the data from source systems and then use it for reporting. We, we did not see any need to change that. 
And from a business value perspective, there was no real business value downstream. So we focused our approach from a data ingestion perspective on those big, hairy uh, problems in our ETL logic around uh, big data volumes, complex transformations, and tried to solve that through EMR. Uh, on the consumption side, what we realized was Netiza was one big monolithic, which ran close to five to 7,000 queries per hour. So we had all kinds of queries, scheduled reports, data extracts, ad hoc analysis, user firing extract with, with millions of rows, system generated extracts, uh, all these different kind of queries were hitting Netiza and then it was slowing everybody down. What we realized is within our data consumption patterns, there are AWS services that can allow us to move a little faster, and we took advantage of that. Within the new capabilities, uh, we were talking to the business users, and they were telling us about the need for a loosely coupled environment, if you will, where different data sets are available, and they can be used for exploratory analysis using notebook-based tools. So that, that's one of the new capabilities came in. And then we were seeing requirements around building data products where uh, the whole solution or whole application is based on a critical piece of profitability data that sits in a warehouse, and people don't have exposure to it because the data is very siloed. So we tried to solve for these use cases. Um, and these next slides, I'm going to spend and talk a little more in detail about some of those use cases. So let's talk about data ingestion. This slide is very near and dear to our heart. There's a lot of content in there. But the key message here is, is that Cisco's business is highly federated. We have 72 different operating companies or distribution centers. Uh, Naveen showed you a map with all those distribution centers. All of these are operated as independent businesses. The way our warehouse was structured before, we used to load data object by object. We used to load sales, then we used to load customers, then we used to load item, and then the whole picture used to emerge. There's, a, there's an issue with that approach, because you are suddenly in a mixed load environment where all these different operating companies or distribution centers that you have, they are in different time zones. So guess what? Data is not even available for Los Angeles. By 10 AM in the morning, at that time, the reporting has already started in New York. That approach really slowed us down from a, from a mixed query perspective, because Netiza couldn't scale very well in terms of running ETLs and running queries at the same time. With Amazon, we were able to federate how we load our data. So in this slide, you'll see that, that we did not change anything from a collection perspective. Informatica still is being used to collect data into S3. And S3 allows us to decouple what we do from a collection perspective to everything downstream. So in this case, we were able to now batch opcos together and execute their ETL on separate EMR clusters and get much more efficient in terms of processing our ETL jobs. We are at least two to three hours faster on processing our ETLs today, and we are able to meet business SLAs from a reporting perspective because the ETLs are going much faster. From a data consumption perspective, right? the few things that we learned very quickly is, is that when you draw the kind of queries that you're running on your system in terms of complexity, which means how much uh, volume those queries are running for, how many rows they have, what, how complicated the SQL joins are, you'll see a pattern that will emerge. There are a lot of interactive query that is happening with our front-end tools like business objects in Tableau that, that's relatively small, and there are a lot of them that are going on at the same time. There's also this, this big extract-related queries that are going on. Uh, you have users running multiple extracts uh, with, with million rows in it. You have service accounts that are running data set on a weekly basis with 5 million, 10 million, 15 million rows out of it. These use cases, the one that you see in red, they needed to be separated out from the Redshift environment for us to take advantage of all the interactive query functionality that, that is happening in Redshift. So what we ended up doing there is, is that we took the uh, structure that you have uh, in red and used different design patterns to solve for that problem. Uh, one of the issues that with these extract queries is that when they try to use JDBC and ODBC as a framework, you are limited by how much data can pass through the leader node. But that constraint goes away when you run the queries on Redshift, unload it to S3, 
and use the data structure that you have in S3 for further downstream processing. And that's what we ended up doing with, with a lot of these extract-based use cases. And everybody was happy. People were getting their reports uh, a little earlier. All those extracts were, were going on on time. We also identified some users that were in a habit of firing queries that are more exploratory with 5 million rows, 10 million rows, 15 million rows. Most of the time, those queries were not for a specific purpose. It was just exploration to see what's going on in the data set. So we started using uh, Athena for those use cases by having the data within the S3 layer. Now, this slide I wanted to talk a little more about was on the BI side, uh, traditionally, what we have seen is we load data one way. We keep our staging layer complete, then the then the integration layer complete, then the data mart layer complete, and suddenly we have all the data that we want to do analysis with. This was an eye-opener for us. We realized that we can actually feed the curated data back to S3, combine it with all the other data set that's already available in S3, and enable other different personas to use our data set that we have traditionally not done. We can use these kind, this kind of a framework for our data scientists where they can connect to uh, a Zeppelin-based environment and have access to all this data set to do explorations. Business users can fire SQL directly to the source, and then and, and so on. With that, I think uh, I'll quickly spend two minutes on, 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 on the capabilities of data repository. So data repository is uh, a reference architecture implementation of AWS uh, Data Lake. What we are doing here is, is that we are building a, a data acquisition, data management, and a data access layer. Uh, all the collection and storage of data within S3 is being configured uh, to, uh, to be at that environment. And we are also enabling cataloging and searching using the Glue framework. So suddenly you have this loosely coupled infrastructure that is available for all your data analysts to run all the different kind of queries. The other thing that I wanted to focus was on new capabilities around data products. So this kind of stemmed from a business need that we had. Um, we have this application that requires us to pull profitability trends over the past one year, two year, or a three year period uh, to really understand if we need to give new deals to our customers. So this is an opportunity where we are trying to optimize the basket versus optimize the individual transactional line items. So the understanding that we want to drive here is, is that overall from a trend perspective, is the customer profitable? Can we give him or her more deals on a specific item so that overall basket is optimized. So there's an application in place and there is an exception process, and it depends on a lot of data for us to get it right. What we are doing here is, is that the data is available in Redshift. We are writing the calculations on the fly, pushing the data to S3, and through EMR, taking it to a DynamoDB and exposing it via an API that can be consumed in applications like Salesforce to do this analysis. This was done within weeks. Something like this uh, is previously was not possible for us to kind of uh, go do. With that, uh, all the things that I showed you uh, came with a lot of lessons. Um, there are two things that I wanted to kind of quickly talk about. First one is uh, if you are in a Netiza environment and you have a lot of ETLs in place and ELTs in place, there is a lot of refactor effort to convert a row-based store to a column-based approach. Uh, we learned it the hard way, especially if you have ETLs and ELTs that have a lot of updates and inserts. Uh, the best strategy around that is to push it to EMR and then, and then go from there. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was, was the economy of architecture. And, and, and I wanted to take data pipeline as an example and talk through that. So I'm talking about the cost piece of it. Uh, so typically, with our approach, we wanted to use data pipelines to do our ETLs uh, within uh, Amazon. So one of the things that we realize is, is that a data pipeline is a, you can get a data uh, pipeline for 65 cents per execution, or you can get a high-frequency data pipeline for $1 per month. Now, they look very uh, small numbers, but when you add them up, the numbers suddenly start becoming big ones. For example, if you, if you take a data pipeline with 65 cents per execution, you have, let's say, about uh, 110 opcodes running in 10 batches. So you have 10 batches to run. Each, op, 
Each batch has to run about 40-odd processes. You run them two times. Uh, you are executing 0.65, and then you are running it every day, so 30. So overall, that's a cost of about $17,000 a month. You can optimize the cost by using a high-frequency pipeline. The, the multiplication factor of 30 goes away directly, and you are spending a lot less. And then you can, you can optimize it even further. So this, this constant focus on, 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 on cost is very important for, for us to get to a better solution. So just keep that in mind as, as, as we go. Uh, with that, I think I have one last slide, and then we get open for questions. Uh, so where are we headed, right? So as Naveen pointed out, I think uh, we, have, we have done this cloud enablement piece. And now we are at a point where we are looking to be successful with, with a lot of continuous integration and continuous delivery-related work and integrating Agile in, 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 in our mindset and framework. Additionally, we are also looking to see if we can use Glue more completely within our architecture and framework. Uh, today, we have a lot of overhead in terms of managing the EMR clusters. Uh, some of that overhead can go away if we start using a Glue-based framework. And then finally, uh, we left out the data collection piece within Informatica. There's an opportunity for us to optimize the data collection piece independent of all the work that has happened downstream. And we are looking to see uh, what we can actually go do there to, to optimize it even further. So with that, uh, we are open for questions. Come on over there, I think. Have you bring a mic on her? Uh, Go ahead. Do you want to, to repeat the question too, so they can pick it up on that? So I think he's asking about cost optimization and that we work with Amazon on it. Uh, we absolutely did. I think one of the, the, the evolutions that we went through was the fact that all the components that we started off with weren't what we ended up with, right? As we evolved, we worked with the Amazon folks. There was a dedicated architect that we had on the team that informed us of things that were coming on the roadmap in terms of components that were coming out as well as what we weren't using and potential alternatives that we could use for our strategy. So yes, we did work with Amazon closely on not just optimizing costs, but on the overall architecture as well. Yes? How big is your data engineering team and your data science team as far as scale in terabytes or in terabytes? So we're still in terabytes. We are not at the petabyte scale. The, the, the difference, though, is we're starting to farm a lot of our external data sets to be able to now get it into the platform and then get better curated insights for our business. The team started off fairly small. We've got data science capabilities embedded not just within our technology practice, but also within the business. So I would say anywhere between, we started off anywhere between one to five people. We've probably grown to double that size right now. Yes? So uh, I'd like to Thank you. No. We had no issues with that. We had a ton of issues. And in fact, there's, there's a parallel initiative that we're running around. You talked about master data. So we actually have a master data initiative that's in flight to clean up and augment our customer item and product data to be able to kind of serve this up. So this, that's an ongoing process. It's not something that was magically solved by what we did with this. That's something around governance and the business actually owning that data to be able to provide us the right outputs as well. So it's, it's an evolution in my mind. You don't have to clean everything up to get the curated insights. You start off with what your priority attributes are, priority metrics are, and that's what we started to do. So it's, it's an evolution and it's gonna continue in my mind. I don't think there is a end point to the journey. It's, it's constant evolution, not just because of technology, but because of the additional data sets that keep coming into your ecosystem. And on the transactional side, there's one thing that I like to point, right? When you already have an environment in place, everybody is going to compare to that environment. So you really need to be able to validate and be able to say that these two data sets match. And if they don't match, there is either an explanation or a correction that needs to happen. And, and, and that's something that, that took a lot of time for, for us to iterate and get to the right answer. Because either the numbers match or something has to change. And I think that's what we focused on. There's a question right here. You might want to repeat the question. Yeah. So uh, the question is, is you, uh, there is a stats on the query history. How do we get that data? So uh, 
In Netiza, there is a query history table. You can, you can get all the different types of stats on, on who's running the query, how the query is being run, how long they have been running. And then we match that up with what is our strategy around building the two by two around it. And then, and we have Varun's being politically correct. So we, we actually did not have a whole lot of the data, right? Because a lot of our legacy applications weren't even tracking what our usage was. Netiza was one of the ones that we probably could get the data from. There was a lot of other applications that we really didn't know. A lot of this was also done by surveys and polling. A lot of the guys over here wrote the surveys that went out to our users to be able to poll what the usage was looking like. So that's how we kind of plotted this. It wasn't just that. Varun was being, was, was being nice to the team. There was a lot of our legacy applications where we just didn't know. We were sending out rows and columns and all these PDFs. We had no clue about who was using it, how they were using it. Yep. And sometimes I think you find that like, you know, by moving the data into like a Redshift database, like, you find who those users are pretty quickly because you know the nature of MPP column or database. Like, if someone tries to extract like eight million rows through the JDBC interface, like you're going to find out who that person is pretty quickly, right? <laughs> really and, quickly. And maybe that's not like that's a little bit more pain than you want to do, but there's there's yeah. <laughs> So there is a relatively high degree of SQL com uh, com compatibility between what we have in Athena versus what we have in, in Redshift. One of the ways to convince those users is that we showed them the stats. So we identified those users. So we have a user called Crick1078, and he is in a habit of, of writing queries that are one, two, five, seven million rows. So we sat down with the users and said, this is what you're running and talk to us about the business value. This is the environment that we have. And suddenly, that Athena has a per query cost. You are able to see which users are running what kind of a queries, and then that optimizes that framework. Nobody is just going in and generally firing those, those And queries. I think the, the other caveat to that is I think there's persona-based interfaces as well, because a data scientist will use different interfaces than an end user who's consuming reports through visual analytics, right? So we don't really have a whole lot of different tools for each persona. It's, it's kind of one or two per persona, if you will. And the benefits, to Varun's point, the benefits of going to that tool or migrating to Athena, when you articulate that to the business, and it's a targeted set of users that you know that work with this, it becomes a lot more easier in frictionless conversation. Yes? It is hard. Varun, do you want to take that? That's a hard question, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so I think uh, one change at a time was where we wanted to go. So I think when Naveen showed us people, process, and technology, so we started innovating on the technology side. Um, with, with the EDW system or, or, or platform-related systems, it's relatively easier as long as the user's world is not changing, you can actually do a lot of plumbing in the back end. So that's what we focused on initially, got the technology piece figured out, got it right, and once we are at a point where the technology works, we move down to the agile world where we want to integrate with uh, continuous integration to make sure that it stays consistent and updated. So a lot and of this was, in, time components flies. of this were in parallel, right? We weren't doing, hey, let's go build the data lake, and then we'll go to the business and say, hey, we've got value for you, right? Because that's never gonna fly. You need to be able to activate things as you're kind of moving along. Components of what we did was not necessarily build all of the stuff that you see in a three-year time horizon. We weren't doing all of this and being able to tell the business, now you're ready to go, go have at it. We actually we staggered the journey, if you will, right? Looking at what the value was, we started activating visual analytics on our legacy platforms, right? You actually had insights being driven from our legacy platform while we were starting to replumb everything underneath it to be able to move it to AWS and build seed. The, the question that you asked about agile transformation and, and the people and process components of this, absolutely, it felt like we were doing open heart surgery while trying to drive a car, while getting to the airport and flying the plane as well. So it absolutely felt like that. 
But the good news in all of this is we were able to take bite-sized chunks of what we wanted to do. We had a very, very focused goal on the targets. Right? Our first target was, hey, let's retire Natiza, because from a benefits perspective, that gave us dollars back, that we'd then be able to reinvest back into the program to be able to build new capability. The Agile transformation gave us the connect to the business and gave them visibility. You asked about what we showcased to them. Every two weeks, there is a showcase that you know, they actually see material things being developed by the individual teams that are aligned with each of our business functions to showcase, hey, this is what you're getting in, in, in a couple of weeks. Normally, you would have given me a BRD, and I, I'd probably have tossed it over to someone that I don't even know, and something's going to come back two months later that you really don't want. So that, that became the catalyst for us in terms of the successes that we had with these small steps. And that essentially got us to a point where, hey, now we're at a point where this has become a fairly good success. I think uh, our time is up, so they're kind of waving us in the back of the room that we need to leave, but I think there'll be time afterwards. But thanks, everyone, for spending the evening with us. And awesome. Thanks, Francisco, for sharing your story.